CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's time for another Benny J bonus interview brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. Bonus time on the Bendrovsky Show as I speak. It's Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. Here's a headline to tell you what's going on in the world today. First mayoral forum, forum held last night in the northwest side of Chicago. I'm just making up that headline. It's my own personal headline. Why am I making up that headline? Because I was the moderator at that uh, mayoral forum. I was the moderator. We had uh, seven candidates lined up. The two who were not there were the ones I just, I, folks, I'm just going to admit this. My distinguished guest is listening. This is shaking his head. Ben, politics is is a game. You can't take it personal. It's just about strategies, okay? You can't take it personal. Man, we had the forum and they didn't show up. <laughs> Don't take it personal, Ben. It's all about the game. That would be Chewy Garcia and Lori Life. But look, guys, it was Merrill Forum, sponsored by the 38th Ward uh, Democrats. Uh, shout out Rob Markwick and Sharon Markwick. Great job. They accumulated like two dozen questions from various journalists, uh, unions, community activists, like really civic minded people. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go civic on you. OK, so like in this world, we're told participate, believe in democracy. That's what it's all about. Small D democracy. Believe in it because that's the bedrock of our political system. Participation. So you register to vote. You go vote. You stay up on the issues, you read articles about the issues, you don't personalize it, you try to stay above the fray and just concentrate on what's the best in this case for our city. And so dutifully showing up were Willie Wilson and Paul Vallis and Rod Sawyer and Sophia King and Brandon Johnson and Cam Buckner. Okay, I'm probably forgetting someone. I hope I'm not doing this off the top of my head. And uh, they sat there for an hour and a half and uh, answered the questions. Did a great job. I thought everybody sort of helped themselves in one way or another. Not there, of course. Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of the city of Chicago, and Chewy Garcia. We all know why they're not there. One, Chewy Garcia is the front runner, according to a poll that was just released by some union that backs him. And plus, he got in trouble taking, uh, having to ask questions about the campaign contribution he took from FTX, which is the cryptocurrency <laughs> company that just went bankrupt and whose uh, CEO was uh, arrested in the Bahamas. So he didn't want to answer any questions about that. And of course, Lori Lightfoot's going to pretend like the campaign doesn't exist. She's going to run our commercials. That's called a Rose Garden strategy. We got two Rose Garden strategies in this. So here's what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, my distinguished guest is going to bet and don't take it personal. It's not like they stiffed you personally. That's what my distinguished guest is thinking. I don't even know if he's thinking that, but I'm pretending he is. And I'll say this. How come you spend like all that time, Lori Lightfoot and Jesus Chuy Garcia, telling people to register vote and get involved, and then you don't even get involved? 
Like, what kind of message is that to send to, I don't know, school children all over the city? What about our, the kids like who are studying civics? They will go study civics, high school kids, so you can learn how a a, a bill becomes a law. <laughs> yeah, study civics so you can learn how political operatives take control of political campaigns and say things to people like, "Don't show up at the forum, even though there's like 500 people there." Okay, just ditch them. Don't show up because you might get a tough question. You don't want to do that. You just want to air really dumb commercials. I'm sorry, guys. People go, Ben, you're so jaded. You're so cynical. How can you not be jaded? I'm not the cynical one. The cynical one is Lori Lightfoot who goes, I believe in democracy, but I'm not showing up to that forum. And Chewy Garcia, you're not much better, man. You're all over that Harold Washington movie. You're like, Harold this, Harold that. I never saw Harold duck a forum. Never saw. The great Harold Washington took them on. Come one, come on. Great debate last night. Excuse me, great forum. Had a great time. Once again, thank you, Rob Martwick. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest who's sitting there shaking his head, go, Ben, 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 it's all a game, man. When are you going to learn that? Uh, (laughs) Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi, this is Brendan Schiller, and I'm just grateful to finally get an opportunity to chop it up for a little while with Ben Jarofsky after I feel like um we're we're kind of like extended family because you've been in my community forever and i've been around yours but i don't think we've ever actually really had an opportunity to chop it up after like being uh, a fan of the chicago alternative media icon for 40 years so i'm thankful just to be here wow thank you very much that was really nice of you uh we had i can i can recall okay so folks should know this uh brendan schiller uh is the son of Helen Schiller, legendary uh, 46 Ward Alder woman, who was just on the show last week talking about her book. When you're done listening to this interview, I urge you to go check out Helen's interview. It was a blast. Uh, he's also kind of a mentor to Angela Clay, who's running for Alder Woman in the 46 Ward. She was on the show a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about campaign and talking about her eye and talking about uh, just uh, all the institutions, the schools uh, uh, in um, uh, the 46 Ward. Uh, and uh, Brennan, I met you years ago. You don't remember. You were volunteering for your mom's political campaign. I believe the year was, don't quote me on this, 1991. I came into the office. I'll never forget this. You're really tall. And or you were taller than me, so that made you really tall. And you were, I'm going to let this secret out, ladies and gentlemen. This is the old days. You were smoking a cigarette. And I said to you, son, did you know that smoking a cigarette can stunt your growth? And you, you kind of chuckle like, ah, this guy's got jokes. Cause of course you were really tall. And then we had a great conversation about the Wilson Yards uh, tip. I don't know if you remember that conversation. Uh, it was an extended riff and I really enjoyed it. And you said a couple things that blew my mind. So I've been following your uh, career. Uh, and um, so let's start with the time. We're going to do a little political talk in the show. You can't get Brendan Schiller on a show and not talk politics, but I want to start talking about what uh, Brendan's doing right now. So uh, Brendan Schiller, a lawyer, uh, he's a, a son of a, a older woman, raised in politics, understands Chicago politics to the bone, has worked in political campaigns, written articles about political campaigns, uh, partner with April Prayer, shout out April, frequent guest on this show. Uh, and then all of a sudden, to my shock, I just I found out about a, two months ago uh, Brennan, you said the hell with all that. 
and you pulled up your stakes and you moved to Vegas and you're making your living these days playing cards. And I just, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, I'm a reformed gambler myself. I got to reach out to Brendan Schiller to talk politics and poker, the peas and the peas. So why don't we start at the top and talk about your decision to get out of town and go to Vegas? Yeah, so I, I don't think you can separate any of that. So I, 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 when you called me, I realized this was going to be partly a political conversation, partly a poker conversation, and I guess partly uh, a public uh, therapy conversation. Um, the reality is, is that over what turned out to be a 20-year uh, legal career, which followed a, you know, a brief uh, alternative media career, I tried every possible way um, to to make change over that uh, over that legal career um, in terms of direct lawsuits, kind of larger consent decree lawsuits, political activism, working on taking out you know racist judges with JPAC, um, doing consulting, doing lobbying, all sorts of ways. And, and, and I continued to have the nagging feeling that all I was really doing was validating a system that brings premature death to black and brown people. And combined with the fact that I didn't like working that much. Um, and I do also have, like you said, you're a reform gambler. I have a, I think it's fair to say, uh, a gambling addiction, but um, I, so that that's the backdrop is I, I, I last several years, I think particularly since 2017, 2017 really kind of broke me because when, you know, the, when Trump came in, they kind of flooded the zone on everything we did, um, whether it related to immigration or, or policing. And it was really hard to, to see any difference we were making now, you know, obviously if I, if I'm being objective and rational, we we're making a difference. Um, by we i mean all the people we work with i work with uh but i was looking for a way to do something different that didn't constantly daily deplete my soul and about two years ago to the date i came right in the still you know in the heart of the pandemic i came out to las vegas alone for a couple of weeks and uh, i actually was very successful which anybody knows anything about poker and, and poker theory and poker variants uh, knows that that there's a large variance in terms of uh, the run of cards and, and short-term success doesn't really mean anything. But I was very successful for a few weeks playing tournament, no limit hold'em poker. So I decided to give that a go. Um, I don't think it's fair to say I'm a professional poker player or that I even make a living off of it. I was profitable in 2021. 2022 has actually not been profitable. And, and some of it could be due to uh, my lack of skill. Some of it could be due to variance. It's hard to tell unless you do a, a true simulation analysis of every hand I've played. Um, so, I, but I am definitely trying to uh, earn a living off of playing poker because it's my belief that um, for a variety of reasons, it's actually less, I'd be participating less in white supremacy and patriarchy and the things that are killing people right now. Wow. Um, all right. So much to respond to. Uh, I, I really have driven. I, I should respond to the most important thing you said, uh, which you're validating a system that brings premature death uh, to black people. Uh, so why don't you take a deeper dive into that, uh, Brendan, and explain exactly what you mean by that? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I be you know I became a lawyer in twenty oh three after doing a few other things, doing some politics, doing some alternative media, and I did criminal defense. We did I did civil rights. Um, we created a firm that also did immigration. Uh, tangential to that firm, we did like I said, lobbying and consulting, and I tried every which way to impact the system. You know, when I became a lawyer in 2003, uh, the police misconduct entity in the city of Chicago was OPS at that point ran by Lori Lightfoot, where it was about a six-tenth of 1% chance a, a police officer would commit misconduct and get even a slap on the wrist penalty. Um, and over those 20 years, no matter whether it was in the criminal defense arena, the civil rights arena, um, the immigration arena, I saw an individual case after individual case. There was no, there was no arguable objective set of metrics that there would be justice. The, everything was, from my perspective at least, um, very arbitrary. Um, and, and that arbitrariness was often shaded by racism and patriarchy and misogyny and homophobia and all sorts of other things in terms of how so-called justice was meted out, how, how a case would end. And that was an in individual cases. So after a few years, I said, well, let me try some other things. Let me work on larger cases. Let me work on the consent decree. Let me work on the gang database case. Let me work on, for several years, we worked with Chicago Community Bond Fund on bail reform. But for several years, we worked with FDLA on providing, and the, and the public defender on providing police station representation and phone calls. Let me work on these larger cases. Let me work on political stuff. Let's try to, let's create the judicial accountability pack and, and go after racist judges. And, and no matter what I did, how I participated, when we created the West Side Justice Center and we, and we did these things, I did not see, and overall, when, when I looked at the system as a whole, I did not see anything change in terms of a system that was uh, going through these communities and um, instead of doing the things that we know, we know how to reduce violence. The data is indisputable. The studies are, are piled this high. We know what reduces violence and we know what doesn't. And we, as a society, have refused to do the things that reduce violence and continue to do the things that actually increase violence and harm to our community. And no matter how I tried to participate in that system, the overall did never the overall never changed. And and so I didn't want to participate in that system anymore. All right. So what reduces violence uh, and what increases violence? Go. So we know what we, we, we know first and foremost, the the one thing that has consistently been proven over 50 years of studies that reduces violence, believe it or not, is is early childhood education. Um, there's there's retrospective studies in, in Boston, in Michigan, in New York, in Chicago. Early childhood education results in reduced violence 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later. Um, for putting, having, making sure teenagers stay in school and stay in school longer, I mean, in a given day, in a given week, in a given month, reduces violence, multiple studies. I can send you the links. I actually got up about about half hour ago this morning and, and I compiled about 20 links of studies for you so I can send them to you. We know that youth jobs reduce violence. We know that housing reduces violence. There was um, a study, uh, uh, they found, there was a study in the in National Bureau of Economic Research that found um, a few hundred low-income twins 
uh, some of whom had uh, uh, they, were, they were raised by different parents, some of whom received housing vouchers, some of who did, and it was a dramatic difference when they received housing vouchers. Um, we know that Medicaid expansion, we know that med healthcare reduces uh, violence. There, there was several studies that showed the states that expanded Medicaid um, saw a reduction in violence, states that reduced access to healthcare saw an increase in violence. We know that um, we know there's very specific things when they when they increased lighting in certain neighborhoods in New York that reduced violence. When they cleaned up vacant lots in Philadelphia, um, that reduced violence. But we know that the six main things is housing, healthcare, early childhood education, youth jobs and education, mental health, and drug treatment centers. Several studies just show when you re, re, when you increase mental health care, it, it increases um, decreases violence. When you reduce it, it increases violence. Twenty two percent of all incarcerated people in the country were arrested immediately when they were arrested immediately prior to the arrest were homeless. More than more than fifty percent of all people have some document that are incarcerated have some documented mental health history. You provide housing, you provide mental health, you reduce violence. We also know what doesn't reduce violence, which is, and you can't find anybody who who point to a study that shows it does, and I can point to some studies which show it, do, it doesn't. Increased police spending does not reduce violence. Harsher sentencing does not reduce violence. And in fact, there is a point in police spending where if you reach it, and you go above it, you start to increase violence. There's a point in sentencing where if you reach it and you go above it, you start to increase violence because we know that taking people away from their families increases violence. It was a 2014 Quinnipiac study that showed that if you were between the age of 17 and 24 in your first interaction with a police officer, Regardless of what your first interaction with police officer involving anything that was a, a misdemeanor or nonviolent crime, if you were actually arrested and charged, you were 17 times more likely to ultimately commit a violent crime than if you were just talked to and let go. Let, let me explain what that means. If 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 you're walking down the street and, and you're 17 and you're carrying a beer and you're and you're violating, you know, uh, youth intoxication laws and you're stopped and the cop takes that beer and throws it away and says get on your way versus if you're 17 and you're walking down the street with the beer and the cop picks you up takes you to the police station charges you regardless of what happens after that the second person is 17 times more likely to ultimately commit a violent crime why is that because we know that once you get in the system, the system eats you up. It impacts your ability to earn. It impacts your 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 concept of the world. It increases your nihilism. It, it increases your your skepticism. It de decreases your confidence, your trust in your community as a whole. But we also know who those people are because if you're in Mount Greenwood, if you're in Edison Park, if you're in, in Saginaw, the cop is not going to take you to the police station. But if you're in in Inglewood, they are. And so we know how this plays out in every major city, right? Um, and when we did the consent decree, when when I worked with Sheila Betty and Craig Futterman, and, and, they, and they led the team on the consent decree, we studied in 2017, 23 consent decrees. 
And it was three that resulted in decreased violence and decreased uh, crime. And the only thing that they had in common was they figured out ways to reduce police and community interaction. When you reduce police and community interaction, you actually reduce crime. Warren Friedman and, and the folks I, who raised me who worked in the 80s and 90s for CAPS were wrong. It's not about community policing, it's about reducing interaction between community and police. When you take away certain things and make them no longer crimes, when you take away loitering as a crime, when you take away reasons for police to arrest folks, you reduce um, uh, violence and crime. And I don't wanna make this a monologue, but let me make one more point. About two years ago, when I was transitioning from lawyering to pokering, um, I, 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 I hired an intern and I just wanted to look and see. And I looked at policing budgets in cities between 100 and 500,000 in this country. And I, and I had a suspicion I was right. In heterogeneous cities with, with populations between 100 and 500,000, in the Detroits and the Clevelands and the Cincinnati's of the world, in cities with no clear majority population, on average, their policing budget is about 36% of the total budget. In hom hom homogenous cities, regardless whether they're homogeneously black, white, or Latino, and there's there's one homogeneously black city, city with more than 8% black populations between 100 and 500,000, that's Jackson, Mississippi. There's two homogeneously Latino cities, Hialeah, uh, Florida, and, and El Paso, Texas. There's, there's nine homogeneously white cities. They're, their average budget with those populations, their average policing budget was about 18% of the total municipal budget. And where the policing budget was about 36%, their violent crime rate was five times as high as where the policing budget was 18%. Now, I, I have a bias, I'm a police abolitionist, but I, I wanna be clear, I'm not saying, um, the data doesn't show you, you can eliminate policing, but the data does show that there's, there's um, diminishing returns after about 12.5% of municipal budget being going towards police. And after about 18, 19%, there's, re I would argue, now there isn't a study that shows this, but I would argue that, that you're actually beginning to increase crime and violence because you're putting hammers in the community and, the, and, and those hammers are gonna find ways to destroy families. They're gonna arrest people, they're gonna impound cars, they're gonna seize people, they're gonna put them through court systems, they're gonna put them in jails, they're gonna deprive families of access to income, they're gonna deprive families of access to their family, to love, to care, to social interaction, and they're gonna create violence. All right, so let me just start here. We're really going far afield from poker. We'll get back I'm to sorry. poker. I'm sorry. No, it's all right, it's all right, because you gotta understand what drove the man to the poker table. Okay, we so this is the exploration of what drove uh, Brennan to Vegas. All right, so let's just state from the assumption that everything you said is absolutely true. All right, let's just start with that that point. You must concede that everything you said is also counterintuitive to how most we'll deal with Chicago. Chicagoans view the subject, and that if you were an alderman aldermanic candidate or a mayoral candidate saying what you just said, Mayor Lori Lightfoot or Paul Vallis or Willie Wilson, or I'm trying to think who's coming at this from the right, uh, would come at you and say, 
and maybe even Chewy Garcia. I don't know where he's coming from these days because uh, he, he didn't show up at the forum to tell us. Oh, sorry, Brennan. Uh, anyway, these candidates who are coming at it from the right would say, listen to that defund the police hippie. Good God, the streets will never be safe. If Brendan Schiller is elected alderman or mayor, I'll raise your budget. I won't kowtow to lefties like Brendan Schiller. You know they're going to do that, Brendan. So I got. So I got how do you deal? Stars. Is that also what drove you to Vegas? The reality that like ninety nine percent of the people in the city of Chicago—I don't know if it's that high—respond uh, to the get tough on crime rhetoric. Yeah, so that's that's a fair question, but let me let me respond first. First, let me I got four things to say. Let me say because I meant to say this earlier. I think you're you're misreading the whole thing regarding the debate. I would take that if I was you that both Shuli Garcia and Lori Lightfoot were afraid to be questioned by you. They understood <laughs> that if they showed up to that debate, they could possibly blow their their chance to actually win the race. And so I you take it personal. You should take it personal. They were afraid of you. So that's number one. Number two, there is both a reality that that just like white supremacy, just like patriarchy, just like mononormative thinking when it comes to relationships, just like capitalism, there is a construct which defines the way we think about crime and violence and which makes all sorts of bad assumptions about policing. And that you have to overcome that when you're having this conversation we're having. And and that can be difficult at times, but it's not really when you actually focus on the facts and the data and you engage in the conversation. And I engage in these conversations one on one. There is some frustrating things, though, that you raise. One, the Denver in 2020, we had what was supposed to be uh, an epiphany, a collective change of thinking following George Floyd. And the Democratic Party, um, Following that epiphany, all those protests, all that discussion, um, the Democratic Party's operatives and establishment political base then went on um, a, a two-year campaign, which hasn't stopped, demonizing the defund movement and doing it on the basis of a lot of irrational thinking. And I say this because some of the people I've stayed in contact with are Democratic Party operatives who really believe that the defund movement hurt them in 2020, despite all the electoral evidence, the opposite, they won a trifecta, a national, the Democratic Party won a national trifecta in 2020. They won the, the Congress, they won the Senate, and they won the president presidential race. And, and they did it when there was a sitting incumbent Republican president. And that's the, in the first time in over a century that a party won a trifecta against a sitting incumbent and they thought they lost. They talked themselves into thinking they lost and they talked themselves into blaming the defund movement and, and black folks who wanted to change in policing. And even if you just look at the 2022 numbers, in those states, in those states where they continue to demonize the defund movement and continue to demonize those folks working to actually decrease mass incarceration and increase public safety, where the Democratic Party actively did that, they, they got crushed. If you went down and saw the ads in New York or Florida, the Bob Deming ads, 
the ads in New York, you saw a Democratic Party attacking in every way attempts by real people, community people, to, to actually create public safety through the things we know create public safety. And the result was black folks, black folks stayed home everywhere throughout the country, but they stayed home, they stayed home much more in New York and Florida where the Democrats got crushed. Black folks stayed home, I would argue, everywhere throughout the country because in part the Democratic Party's been demonizing the defund movement for two years, especially young black folks. But in those states where the Democratic Party embraced at least the tangential arguments to defund, which include bail reform um, here, here in, in Illinois um, and other types of, and, and, and it was a straight up defund argument being made in LA. In those states and cities where the Democratic Party actually embraced the arguments that were being made in the summer of 2020, black folks showed up a lot more than they showed up in those other states. And so it is not nearly as politically toxic as the Democratic Party's pretending it is, and I would argue it's the exact opposite. I, I would argue they're in their own heads. They're listening to their own biases, um, and they're not really looking at the actual numbers. That's the political argument. But ultimately, the politics doesn't matter. When you take a cold, hard look at the data, we know what creates public safety, and eventually we have to start moving in that direction. All right. Uh, so let's, uh, speaking of moving in uh, other directions, uh, transition out of this political talk, and maybe I'll bring you back sometime. I can have a great debate uh, between you and more, uh, one of my centrist guests uh, on this topic. I think it would be a fascinating debate. And I know I'll find someone that uh, 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 who listens to what other people say and then responds. You know, that's to me the, the better debate than when people just start screaming at each other and don't listen to one another. So, uh, but so uh, I could see why, uh, having heard you um, explain the frustration you were feeling uh, when you see the real solutions being ignored uh, and the quote-unquote solutions that exacerbate the problem being doubled down, that you would just say, out of hell with it. Uh, you would not be the first person to say, you know what, I got to get out of here. There's a certain madness going around. I need a break. Generally, uh, <laughs> the stereotype is they go like, I don't know, for uh, a trip around the world or they go up to uh, people like this, go to Alaska, the wilderness, Alaska, uh, or they, you know, they live uh, off the land for a while. Never heard of anybody um, going out to Vegas uh, and uh, playing poker. So I, that's a curious um life uh choice uh that you made um so before we get into uh you know the the techniques of poker what is it about poker that you find uh in the vegas and vegas uh like solace or relief uh, from what you just explained go ahead yeah so um here's here's the therapy part of this right um so there's a few things. Let me create a little context. I'm obviously my mother's son. And I talk a lot. Let me create a, a a little context. I mean, you read my mother's book, so you you know how I was raised, right? Yeah. Um, so clearly, uh, I was raised uh, outside of the system, um, and and not to be a part of the system, but to rebel the system. But I also have like all the privileges. 
I not only have all the societal conventional privileges of being a cishet white male who's articulate and, and has an education, but because of the people who raised me and my mother, I have all, I was, you know, as a kid, I had all the relationships across the city. Um, I had all of the, uh, all of the, you know, information and knowledge to look at things from different, from a variety of ways. And the problem with all of that is, um, it drives me not to be part of the system, but it also uh, mixes up both fearlessness and recklessness together in a variety of ways, which is how I've lived my life, um, which allows me to move without both, without fear of repercussion, but also maybe sometimes in a reckless way um, it, because of that, right? Uh, so I have the I have the the fearlessness of the people who raised me in terms of looking at the system and the recklessness of 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 not having to worry about anything because I am a, a cishet white male. Um, so that's the context. Uh, the the attraction to poker is is multiple. One, like I said, it, at least in poker tournaments, when you sit down, everybody starts with uh, the same amount of, of money, right? There's no economic inequality. Um, the rules all apply. It doesn't matter. Uh, sure, white supremacy, capitalism, all that plays on the outside in terms of who's able to come to the table, what they're able to bring to the table. But at the table, none of that matters. Gender doesn't really matter. Um, it should, you know, it shouldn't matter. None of that matters in terms of the rules at the table, right? And how every, objectively the rules are the rules. Um, and then for me personally, given the context, um, my greatest uh, fight in terms of becoming who I'm supposed to be before I die internally has been learning how to be disciplined and patient and poker is going to teach poker turn playing poker tournament poker is going to teach you how to be disciplined and patient or it's going to put you on, on the street as a homeless person so one i like gambling two i felt that um i could remove myself from many of the biases that dictate everything else in the world every other industry in the world and poker really is both a culture a game and an industry and i can't explain all that to you and then but then three um, I'm really, this is actually a way to work on uh, some of the things I wanted to work on that I can't do in any other arena. I, it's, it's much easier for me to be, I'm, I can be undisciplined in a courtroom and based on my privileges and my skills and some of my inherent talents, uh, I'll perform 95% of the people in that room. Um, I, I, and so that's not a challenge anymore. So poker is a challenge. All right. So let me uh, get into the issue of um, uh, what you said, uh, discipline and patience. And uh, at the outset, uh, you mentioned in passing, uh, or maybe I said, I can't remember who said it, uh, that I have an addiction uh, to gambling. Uh, and it's true. I spent a good chunk of the 70s playing poker uh, and going to the horse track. <laughs> true confession time on the Ben Jarowski show. And I walked away from it, and I'll tell you why. I think I may have mentioned this to you briefly in a phone. I didn't have the discipline. I was chasing the cards. And I, what I discovered I loved was the high that comes from winning. And it's a high that is, like, I've done, you know, smoked a lot of reefer. In my opinion, of a winning hand in poker, 
is unlike any high that any drug can get. I mean, it's like a natural high almost. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying, because you play poker. When you have that card and you're leading that other person in and you know you're going to win, and you're like, yeah, yeah. And then we, so you start chasing the high, Brennan. You know what I mean? It's like, so you start, instead of folding when you should fold, you go, well, I'm going to wait for the next card. I want to get, I think the next card may be my lucky card. Okay, that didn't work out. Maybe the next one will be my lucky card. So you keep throwing in the and you know, you, the guy throws in his money, you throw in your money to meet him. You know what I'm saying? You can always tell like the guy who's just matching without kicking up higher. So then you is, is, is uh, maybe have weak hands. So then you go, oh, I'll be smart. I'm going to raise to make him think <laughs> that I got a good hand. So you start your mind like even though you have a terrible hand you know what i'm saying and you're just blindly chasing fate and then i'd be losing and i go you know what i uh, don't make a lot of money i've lost all this money uh instead of high i just feel really crummy i'm just walking away uh i'll play spades i'll play big whist you know i'll play hearts uh if i go to the racetrack i'll bring fifty dollars and that's it Okay, that's got to last me when it's done. It's done. That's kind of where I'm at. Uh, you, on the other hand, seem to have the patience to walk away from a bad hand. Uh, is that correct? I'm working on it. I do. So, I, I mean, the poker theory has obviously grown a lot over the last 40 years. And part of the reason it's grown is because poker players, particularly professional poker players, want to create better mechanisms than what you described to. Um, construct their patience and discipline. And part of doing that was understanding the actual math and logic behind how you win poker. So about 10 years ago, the so-called Nash equilibrium in terms of game theory, optimal understanding of poker occurred, was, was found. And, and there's all sorts of now of, of computer simulations of how you're supposed to play certain hands. And so what professional poker players try to do is not be results oriented, not focus on actually winning or losing, but focus on what is the right play in a given situation. And I, so somebody asked me the other day how I grade myself. And I think there's three things. You, What's my understanding of, of poker theory? And I, I think that's actually fairly high at this point um, in terms of what in any given situation I'm supposed to do. Then what's, so-called my exploitative ability and that's actually the best thing i'm at which is understanding what the other players thinking and doing but the third issue is one's own ability to be disciplined and patient and to actually follow what they're supposed to do when they see it and i'm still actually i i, I would grade myself as like a c minus on that that's what i'm working on the truth is if i had developed the patience and discipline but i, I i've had like I explained to you earlier, I've had a lifetime of not having to be patient and disciplined and everything else. I've had a lifetime of being able to wing it and be successful, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this. So I actually am far, I almost always know what I'm supposed to do in given situations. Um, I still, but when, and when I'm patient and disciplined and do what I'm supposed to do, I'm successful. But still these days, more times than not, there's a glitch in my head that that and I, I go with with what feels good as opposed to what I'm supposed to do. And that's what I'm working on. 
All right. And I think it's important uh, to point out uh, that Brenda's not playing against the house. And why don't you explain uh, the difference uh, between when you play poker, what you're doing uh, and what people do when they uh, play against the house. So take it away. Sure. So first off, there's two different types of poker. There's there's cash poker and there's tournament poker. But regardless, all the casino does is essentially charge a fee to host it. And you play against a bunch of other individual poker players. So the, the industry and the economics of poker is interesting. For the longest time, because casinos were just charging a fee to allow people to play at their venue, they really didn't value poker um, as a moneymaker because it really wasn't a moneymaker for them. They were just basically hosting it and other people would make money off of each other. But um, with the World Series of Poker boom in the early 2000s and simultaneously there was other um, poker tours that were building up a presence in, in local communities throughout the country and throughout the world, there's been a, they figured out the economics a little bit in that it's not just, you would think, oh, people are playing poker and the money's just transferring back and forth between each other. But actually what happens is, is there's a consistent inflow of money from other players, both to learn how to play poker theory, um, to be entertained while playing it. Um, and so there's probably about 10 to 10 to 15% of the poker community makes consistent money off of playing cash games and by cash games i mean you sit down and you play either two five five ten twenty you know you sit down somewhere between two hundred dollars and and a hundred thousand dollars and you just play amongst each other and and every hand the casino or the poker room takes a little bit off of that and then there's probably about 15 to 20 percent of the poker community that earns a living off of poker tournaments, which is what I focus on. And tournaments play different than cash games. So in cash games, you sit down, you can sit down with within a range of money, however much money you want. And you and every and if you win the pot, that's real money and you take it and you can get up at any time. Tournaments go anywhere from several hours to several days. I'm in the middle of a several day tournament right now, a, a massive tournament. At, being put on by the World Poker Tour at the, at the win. And essentially, you buy in for a certain amount of money and you get a certain amount of chips and you keep playing either till you get knocked out or till you hit a certain milestone where you win some money. Generally speaking, in those tournaments, about um, somewhere between 10 to 15% of the people cash, but only usually the top three to nine people were in real money. So... As an example, if you have 100 people play by paying $1,000 to a tournament, there's a $100,000 prize pool. The amount of chips they get really isn't relative to that, but the, let's say all 100 people each get 50,000 chips. You keep playing with those chips until one person has all the chips. And if you have 100 people put a 1,000 and it's $100,000, let's say the casino takes 5,000 as their fee to pay the dealers and to coordinate that. That 95,000 gets split up. If you have 100 people, 90 people are going to get zero. And then the top 10 people would split up that 95,000 in a graduate form. So like the top person would get 20,000, the next person would get 15, and so on and so forth. That's how poker tournaments play. I play poker tournaments. Not, I don't play cash. I rarely play cash. One, you can... Um, 
limit your losses playing poker tournaments because while we while i'm out here playing poker i'm also just out here just not trying to work <laughs> um and not try to be part of the system so you can limit your losses to like i said my challenge and one of the reasons i'm doing this is really trying to work on my discipline and patience and you have to have it if you're going to do that in a poker tournament in the cash game you can just get up and go at any given time but you're you're the the market is especially in vegas a certain percentage of all tournament players are pros and are and earn money and are working against each other but they almost all of them are subsidizing their work by also being poker trainers poker teachers it's become such a poker entertainers too it's become such a big industry that there's so, so much money flowing in from people who want to be part of the industry paying for coaching paying for teaching paying for training just paying for the entertainment do you do that as well train i do not because i don't think i could i don't think i do neither one of of, of several things that are part of the industry for because I don't think I've gotten to the point yet where I can honestly say that I'd be a good investment. There's a there's a whole staking industry, so there's there's websites like uh, State Kings and um, uh, several other websites where many of the poker pros sell themselves. So they say uh, I'm about to enter this five thousand ten thousand dollar tournament. You can buy ten percent of me for one thousand and five hundred dollars yeah. or whatever. There's all sorts of ways this act, the the uh, poker economy kind of mirrors the larger economy. I I still just focus on playing poker right now. And uh, and uh, so you, you said something. Uh, I got to follow up on it. So this is an ongoing tournament. So how does it work that you're involved in now? It's been going on for about a week. You said I think. Uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. The so the there's a series of tournaments happening for about three weeks. It's a major uh, world poker tour. The tournament I'm in now is a nine-day tournament, but there's three day ones. So you could enter any one of the day ones. So the first day one was Monday. The second day one was uh, yesterday. And the third day one's today. Um, about 600 people entered the day 1A, which was Monday, and 235 survived. That means the rest lost all their chips. I was one of about 1,050 people that entered day 1B yesterday, and about 600 survived. Um, and then there'll probably be 12, 11, 1,200 people entered day 1C today. And then on Thursday, there'll probably be about 1,000, 1,200 people all come back and play again and play for uh, about 12 hours on Thursday. And then whoever survives will come back on Friday. And you keep playing until you make the money, which in this case is 12.5%. So there'll probably be about 2,500 people who enter. Um, and then that means about 320 of them or so will make the money. And that'll probably happen on Friday. And then you keep playing till you get a, a winner and that'll probably happen on Monday or Tuesday. So you say 12 hours a day you played? Is that, did well, I hear that? Yes, that includes, that includes, um, 15 minute breaks every 90 minutes or every two hours depending on the structure and usually it's somewhere between an hour to an hour and 15 minute dinner break. But yeah, there it's, wow. so I played last night till about midnight uh, Vegas time. And then I wandered around for an hour cause it always takes some time to come down. And then I only got like three or four hours of sleep cause I had to get up early and research for the Ben Jarofsky show. <laughs> if he loses, he's gonna blame me. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh -uh, I'm not taking that one, okay? 
<laughs> it's not my fault. You didn't have to do any of that research. <laughs> Blame me. Oh, God damn, mommy's gonna tell Helen Jiller. Bad damn Ben. <laughs> wow, man, that's that's uh, that's that's a serious uh, life. I don't know what's tougher now that I think about it: hiking through the wilderness of Alaska uh, or twelve hours at the table. I'm not. I know I wouldn't uh, survive in either one. Uh, I'm going to close by asking you this. I'm going to ask you to uh, mix your political hat and your poker hat. Uh, so the city of Chicago is moving forward to uh, opening up a casino, I believe, yesterday. Don't quote me on this, uh, Brendan. The city council, I think the zoning committee or the plan commission, I forget where it's at right now, gave it its approval. Uh, but it's well on its way. Uh, there's no significant opposition anywhere to be found. It's going to be on the in the Gold Coast, Walter Burnett's ward. Uh, not far from where Cabrini Green used to be. Let's just pause to think about that. Tying all the themes of Brendan's appearance today. They destroyed Cabrini Green, took away housing, moved people out, made, gentrified the area, and now they're bringing in a casino. Uh, and probably going to spend tip dollars to do it. So, uh, your thoughts as a poker player and as a political observer about whether that's a good idea for the city of Chicago to open up a casino. So, I... I've had a lot of conversations actually several years ago with some of the progressives who I I really respect and love, like Rob Peters, and on this gambling question because there is a, a legitimate question: Is this just a way to hide regressive revenue raising because um, folks who are on the opposite side of the of the power dynamic are more likely to to lose money and less likely to control it? Ultimately, all revenue comes down to, are you doing it through regressive means or are you doing it through progressive means? Are you, are you distributing income up or down? Because that's all governments do with how they raise revenue. Depending on what the revenue is, they're either distributing it up or down. They're either, they're either exploiting, continue to exploit the labor of, of poor folks and make them work harder for less, or they're not. And I think there's ways to do revenue raising from gambling that doesn't do that just like i think there's ways to do revenue raising from cannabis and drugs and other vices what we know is is that criminalizing vices has always been a means of social control when you criminalize vices in a white supremacist patriarchal society who you're really controlling are people of color and women and other people on the wrong side of the power dynamic so we should decriminalize and have access to all vices and then figure out means that the, to ensure that the revenue raising is progressive and not regressive. And I think there's ways to do it. I don't think we're necessarily doing it in the society. I don't know anything about the casino deal in particular in Chicago, and I can't comment on that. I do believe there are ways to do progressive revenue raising from all vices, in, including uh, uh, gaming. But I also believe that... Um, Although I'm anti-capitalist these days, <laughs> I do believe that it, and although I've had, uh, I have a lot of bitter tastes in terms of my experience with the cannabis stuff, I do believe that we have to continuously be uh, vigilant in trying to identify not only progressive revenue raising, but social equity in terms of ownership control and, and profiting. Um, from all the vices, and I doubt that they did that with casino. But like I said, I don't know anything about this. Okay. Uh, I thought you might have like a principal thought about it, uh, an abstract principal thought about it, have without the details. Uh, and of course, yes, uh, so much of the significance is in the details. We really haven't seen all the details, even though we're 
rushing for typical Chicago deal. Uh, Brennan, uh, stay ignorant, people. It's better for you. Uh, uh, just trust us, okay? Um, I, I uh, we'll we'll hold this uh, end of the conversation for another appearance because uh, I I'm with you. I believe uh, the criminalization of vices uh, just exacerbates all the other problems that you talked about at the uh, outset. Um, I, but, uh, I also do not at the moment see any way to, uh, progressively operate a casino, uh, so that the poorest people, uh, aren't subsidizing effectively, uh, the wealthiest people, if we're dependent on that casino for like something like pension funds, which they're linked directly to pension funds. They've already linked like the, the the revenues that the city gets from this casino will go to pay off police pension funds, which is so bizarre, Brendan. Just, I mean, like, you can't make this stuff up. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it had been illegal, so now we're going to make it legal, and we're going to use it to pay off the people who would have arrested everybody in the old days. Oh, yeah. He's like, where's George Carlin when I need him? Uh, I, I do yeah, continue my... to believe, and I don't know if, if... I mean, I think Chewy's likely to be mayor. I really like, uh, let me, be, I, I I, have five friends running for mayor. I, I really like Brandon Johnson. I think he would be a good mayor. I really like Cam Buckner. I think he'd be a good mayor. Rod Sawyer's a friend. Mm -hmm. Jamal Green's a friend. I think Chewy's going to be mayor. I think it's possible to find progressive, innovative revenue solutions if we just ever had the will. And, uh, I really do. I think there's a bunch of them out there that, um, would also be so-called pro-growth, truthfully, in terms of economic growth in the city, would help, would, could, would tangentially help to repopulate the south and west sides. I think there's all sorts of options. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope Chewy swings for the fences. I don't think, I don't know if he will. Um, and, you know, I, I still text him. Um, I hope he's not going to try to be a type of mayor who just wants to prove that a, uh, kind of lefty Latino can govern. I hope he's the type and is competent because the majority of people already know that. I hope that Clem and Matt Pierce and his friends around him decide that maybe he should try to be a legacy mayor and really swing for the fences and try for some really innovative, progressive revenue raising and changes in the city. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Clem in question is Clem Baldoff, been a guest on the show. Uh, and... Uh... <laughs> I'm just laughing because I'm sure it was Clem's idea. Don't go to that forum, Chewy. <laughs> First thing, Chewy, be your own man. Okay. Brendan said all these nice things about you. Just because Clem tells you something doesn't mean you have to do it. Okay. I'm just going to teach you that one right now. Just because Helen Schiller was her own woman. Okay. Brendan was probably telling his mom things all the time. And she said, son, let me be the older woman. Okay. <laughs> you be the poker player. Oh, my goodness. I wish I had a microphone on us uh, when we had that conversation about uh, the Wilson Air Tip deal, Brent. I don't know if you remember, but uh, it uh, was a great conversation, resonated with me. Basic theme was no matter who, everybody in Uptown is always sobbing like a baby. That was your basic theme. And then you went off on this riff. It's like, I don't know if you remember that. Um, Anyway, Brennan, uh, thank you very much for getting up so early to do this interview. Uh, I want you to take a nap, okay, <laughs> after this interview, because I don't want to hear any crying from you that you lost because you did this interview. All right? All and right. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Good cards. Uh, are you going to be out in Vegas for all the holidays and Christmas and New Year's, et cetera? 
Yeah, um, I, I was back in Chicago over Thanksgiving. Um, I'm I'm here because a bunch of different people come and visit. I am going to. I, I, I know, like I said, listen to the show. I know you talked to my mother. George Atkins is in bad shape, so me and her are going to go check him out in West Virginia at the beginning of January. Um, otherwise, I'm a I'm a mostly be in, in Las Vegas. Yeah. By the way, George Atkins, as I said the last time, a legend, freaking legend. There was some uh, activist. They they were like. I'm gonna. This is. I'm saying this. This is me speaking, not Brendan. These are people who got into the game of politics because they wanted to improve the world, and I doubt any of them made any money. So you got like the David Axelrod. I'm not hating on David Axelrod. I'm just saying, uh, he got into politics. Yeah, I'll change the world, but I'm also gonna get rich. Got like George Atkins, Mark Zalkin, Curly Cohen. These names, you know, I know all these guys. I met them when they were very young. I was very young too. And uh, it was all about changing the world. And uh, so nothing but respect for all of them. Uh, and I hope the best for George Atkins. Uh, all right, Brendan, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, as the song says, uh, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Uh, <laughs> sorry, thank I didn't you. do that. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. All right. That's uh, Brendan Schiller. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.